This week on the Backtable Podcast. This is where the concept of leadership and mentorship kind of blur, but it's being able to recognize like real strengths within an individual and leveraging those and, and really embracing those. So if you have a junior faculty that has passion about something, rather than dumping papers, dumping responsibilities, identifying what they're interested in and then building that up and allowing them to run with it. Again, it will pay back multifold rather than just like, oh, you have to be the quality person because I don't want to do it. You have to do this because I don't want to do it. There's a difference between giving somebody something that is valuable versus giving something that they don't want and becomes a task or a responsibility. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Andrew Weiner from SUNY Downstate. Not only is Andrew a tremendous mentor, friend, and colleague, he's one of my best buds from fellowship, and we've really had a good, good run these last almost decade together. Andrew, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I am fantastic, beyond excited to be here. And just FYI, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Great. So Andrew, to me, was a, a natural choice for this particular topic because no hyperbole intended. The number of medical students that have told me I went into urology because of Andrew Weiner is absolutely astounding. And it kind of dawned on me that, you know, he's got to be doing something there, getting involved, being a mentor that that's left this impression. So is this something that you, you do kind of proactively, Andrew? Yeah. You know, I think that it is something that has been building over a long time, but it's something that requires particular attention. I would say it comes naturally to everybody. And certainly for me, it's something that I've had to continue to develop as I've gotten through the years. But one thing that I will say is that our program in Brooklyn does a, a really good job of managing all the clinical craziness that we deal with. But one thing that we do exceptionally well is early and intense mentorship, both for residents and medical students. And, and you pointed to it in the last 10 years, we put out over 70 students into the world of urology. And it's something that we're extremely proud of. And again, it comes from all levels, from the chair down to junior faculty. And it's very much a two-way street for us. We take on mentees of all different walks of life, but we make sure to give them the proper attention that they deserve. Yeah. So let's just start out with some definitions. What is a mentor? Yeah, I would say a mentor is just basically somebody, when you boil it down, who helps you grow your skills, help you make better decisions and gain new perspectives on your life or career. Somebody who helps maximize your potential in whatever realm you choose, you know, life, work, and other. But for me, the purpose of mentorship really is to connect the individual who may have a skill set or experience or knowledge with somebody who may be interested in gaining that skill set or knowledge. And that's where the gap lies. Yeah. And, and why do it? I mean, maybe both from the mentor side as well as the mentee side. Why do it? I mean, it takes time. There may be a little bit of friction, competing interests. Why be a mentor? 
Yeah, that, that is a great question. And I would tell you, I learned incredible amounts from my mentees. Every single one of them I've taken a little piece from. And so it's certainly, as I had mentioned before, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's certainly a two-way street, not just in terms of gaining the most out of the relationship, but also what each of the partners serves to gain. So for, for instance, medical students that I mentor, they bring to the table different skill sets, analytics, idea generation, perspectives, and every single one of them comes from a different place. And I pull away from each one of them something different and unique. And same with my residents and same with the, my colleagues that I work with. Yeah, I think that's insightful. And to be honest, my first couple of years in practice, things were so busy. It wasn't very practical. I recognize it sounds like an excuse to do a lot of hands-on mentoring. But when things did kind of slow down a bit during the pandemic, I started having more regular meetings with medical students that were interested in urology. You know, we'd meet monthly. It was just much more granular. And then it developed into a relationship where, you know, now we're talking about not just research, but applying for residency and you get to know them and their story. And a few of them graduated this past year. And just the joy you see, it's not like your kid, but it's not like light years off, you know, the satisfaction and happiness I got from seeing somebody that I've been involved in their career was, was really tremendous and honestly benefit enough at the end of the day. Couldn't agree more. And the one thing that I will say is I keep in touch with a lot of the people that I mentor. And so seeing them at the other institutions, touching base with them just before this show started, I had one who said, now I'm starting internship tomorrow. And I just want to thank you for everything. I'm excited. I'm scared. But that's something that in 10 years, I look forward to that individual reaching back as we develop our relationship, collaborating, seeing each other at the different conferences, referring different students, different residents. It's all just such a small world that I, I make sure to keep in contact with all the people that I invest time in. Totally critical. So, so you mentioned that at SUNY, we've got a fairly robust formal mentoring program. Formal versus informal mentoring, any opinions on that? Well, that's a, a good question, but I think that there's no such thing as necessarily informal mentorship. I think that you have to understand that to be an effective mentor, it requires a couple of key elements. It requires time. It requires that you can meet the mentee where they're at. It requires a certain amount of demonstration of gratitude or praise for them. And then I think also being honest and setting realistic goals for them. So if you're not able to really take on all of those things, then it's more like coaching rather than mentorship. And I think there is a distinguishment between those things. I think giving somebody some small piece of advice here and there is more like coaching, but a true mentor is somebody who invests a lot of their time and effort into a relationship, truly a relationship that grows over years and benefits both sides. Yeah, I think that's important and certainly something for me to reflect on. I mean, a lot of times people that are going into oncology, for instance, they kind of gravitate towards the oncologist and same for FPRMRS or, you know, whatever your kind of discipline may be. So I think those relationships form and whether that's technically mentoring or not, it sounds like probably not. But I also think that if you don't have formal mentoring mechanisms, people that are introverted or less likely to reach out or worried about bothering somebody or wasting their time may kind of go through without ever finding a mentor. And you know, I think it's safe to say that 
anybody that's had like a successful career probably has had a good mentor somewhere along the way. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I mean, that is so important for everybody to know is that we've all had mentors to get to where we're at and we've been mentees at some point in time. And so for the mentees out there, really understand that we've been in that position. And so taking that leap of faith, getting rid of the fear factor of thinking that whoever you're potentially interested in having be your mentor for whatever reason has been in your shoes before. And they're probably more approachable than you think. And so just sometimes ripping that bandaid off and in a respectful, time-respecting manner, approach them. And so you have to understand that men, being a mentee requires its own set of rules and regulations, right? You have to, by all stretch of the imagination, show up prepared for your you know, relationship, for any meeting that you have with your mentor. I liken it to an iceberg analogy where when you sit down with your mentor, you want to just be at the tip of the iceberg. You're presenting all of the work that's below the surface of the water. Everything that you've done thus far in the time between our meetings, that's what you're presenting. And so I can use the time that we're sitting down to tweak or force correct rather than invent or create or do. Time is, is really so valuable on both ends that really coming prepared and showing up and respecting your mentor's time. Because in essence, you're asking them to be your mentor because they're good at something. And so probably busy doing what they're good at. So you really want to make sure to respect that time and come prepared. So just to go back to what you're saying, there are some that kind of sit in the lurch who express interest. And those are ones that sometimes like grab onto more tightly. Yeah, those are, those are excellent points. So you've, you've mentioned this not being like overly formal to the point where it's, I don't know, transactional, but it does require a commitment. And is there a minimum amount of time? I mean, once a month, once a quarter, once a year that you think is necessary, or is it mentor-mentee relationship specific? It's totally specific to that relationship. It's just like research, right? You want to have a bunch of things going. You never know what's going to hit, what's going to be sitting on the back burner. Some people have intense needs and then you need to meet once a week or bi-weekly to get them through that hump. And then they can do some work for a little bit and come back to it a month later. And then every relationship, again, it doesn't end. It keeps going. So sometimes once the acute issues are dealt with, then you put it onto the maintenance phase and you can have once in a while check-in. So it's very relationship specific. And uh, I, I wouldn't say there's a prescribed time point, but I will say that, again, we have to understand that as mentors, we shouldn't be following our own agenda. It's really... The discussion surrounds what the mentee's interests are and reverse engineering that platform and using a game plan that's kind of based off of your experience with their interests at the helm. Totally. As I was preparing for this, I've thought about some of the students that I've worked with and I've been very lucky that they've generally been lights out. And sometimes when they're so good, you almost become possessive. And I've caught myself... It's like, oh, I'm working with you and faculty X. I'm like, oh gosh, I wish they would just kind of work with me. And I mean, you know, of course I would never like actually become like pathologically possessive, but I think it's important when we talk about good mentor mentee dynamics, that there are some things that are undesirable. 
like taking credit for somebody else's work. Like if your mentee is lights out or is taking an initiative and a project takes off, like making sure that you're acknowledging that. I mean, somebody that kind of sticks out in my mind that we both know is Jonathan Coleman. Anytime he gives a talk, it's always like, oh, when this person came through and he was a fellow, he did some great work on this project and 10 years ago. And I always loved that. You know, these are like national meetings and he's calling out his fellows and residents. So, you know, not taking credit for their work, not being selfish. And then another thing I thought about is, you know, I'll get a paper that I'm sure somebody was really excited to write and they're expecting me to like turn it around in 48 hours. And, and next thing I know, it's been like, four weeks, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like I'm the rate limiting step for this young mentee. Any kind of comments on things to avoid? I would say that selflessness is an absolute virtue in anything we do, but we particularly, you know, in urology, it's a small field and these individuals are going to go on and do great things. And so making sure that again, your interests are set aside and that you give recognition like Dr. Coleman, like you. I mean, you're a prime example of that. And we have so many other colleagues that we share that go on to greatness, but never forget the giants that got them there. And also some of the less, you know, like the less big people that helped pave the path. So never forgetting how you got to where you're at and making sure to reciprocate that for the people who are looking to you for advice. One of the things that I would say regarding being the rate limiting step, again, it goes back to that time management. I think that sometimes mentees fear poking their mentor. I tell them, you can text me, you can email me, you can call me. It may take me a little while to respond, but sometimes it kind of goes down a little bit on my priority list, whatever it is that we're talking about. And I don't ever, ever take offense to a little poke. Hey, remember, remember this? And it's respectful, right? It's, it's not like a, you know, you're holding me up, but you should feel comfortable enough in, in the relationship where you can kind of gently nudge your mentor to get their act together. Yeah. And I think, you know, just defining that relationship kind of helps, you know, setting expectations so that there's not this weirdness. I, I totally do the same things, you know, call me, text me, email me, and you're never going to kind of bother me. And so far I haven't been burnt by that. So we talked a little bit about the undesirables. You talked about selflessness. This really is about the mentee and not about us. What are some of the qualifications that you think are, well, are there qualifications? Do mentors need some training to actually be effective? Or is this just kind of a natural relationship where you're ultimately defining a goal and trying to get there? I don't think that it's like surgical training where it's a stepwise progression. I think it is something that requires time and effort and repetition. Taking on more mentees over time, eventually you will hone your skill set and know some things to just avoid, some things to kind of go forward with. For me, those key traits that I mentioned before, time, meeting them where their interests lie, bigger, small praise, particularly with learned skills and not their natural talents. Natural talents just come to people. But learn skills through your relationship is where it's at. And then I really do think you're failing your mentee if you're not honest or have a space in your relationship to be brutally honest. Again, not dashing their dreams. You're not crushing their <laughs> hopes and agendas, but really setting realistic expectations. Those are the things that I think people can work on over time 
to become a better mentor. It's not a prescription, but it's something that like, I really, as I've kind of been thinking about the successful relationships I've had and the, the ones that were maybe less successful, which there have been some, those are kind of the ones that stick out to me, but I don't necessarily believe in a formal mentorship training program. No, I appreciate that. And we've both talked a bit about how we've had opportunities to do leadership courses, learn a little bit about coaching through our institutions. And I found a lot of those things to be incredibly insightful, you know, personality types, personality tests, ways of communicating. And I can kind of see that translating. I mean, in some ways you're in a leadership role many times when you're mentoring somebody, or certainly there can be a superior, less superior dynamic. So I haven't thought about it enough or even know enough about it, whether formal training for mentors would be beneficial, but I certainly don't think it's mandatory to have a positive impact on somebody. Yeah. Just to dovetail on that thought, I would say we as mentors, we can take on mentees from, like I said, all different walks of life, right? And it doesn't have to be age specific, gender specific, race specific. I would say from a mentee perspective, when you're looking for a mentor, there can be different things that you're looking for in a mentor. And you don't have to hone in on one person. You can develop a mentorship team. You know, in our department, we have a number of different faculty coming from all different places and walks of life. So we, as a group, mentor students. And so you'll get different recommendations sometimes, but it's all different perspectives, different skill sets, different lessons learned from different individuals. And for me, that idea or concept of a mentorship team is invaluable. Totally. And I think, I mean, we're kind of limiting our conversation to urology and professional life, but there's so much more that goes on, right? I mean, you may have your research mentor and then your clinical mentor, then you may have kind of more of a life mentor. And I feel like that's probably the way to go to get a little bit of a different perspective and not diluting the one-on-one -on -one relationship. And, and again, for the mentors, to not in any way feel like that minimizes your your impact. And I totally want to dig into here in a bit more on mentoring people that are less like you, because I think that's something that can also be extremely rewarding for all parties involved. But before we dive into that, you'd mentioned, you know, being honest and constructive criticism. I mean, that's, you know, it's easy to say, hey, you're doing a great job, keep it up. But it's harder to say, you know, these are the things we need to work on to really get you across the finish line or get to whatever your goal is. Yeah, I cannot emphasize this enough. Being honest with them is the thing that will allow them to understand what it takes to get to the next level. And again, it doesn't have to be condescending or rude or even mean-spirited in any way. But again, setting realistic expectations. For instance, if you have a medical student and you're mentoring them coaching them to get into urology, we have to understand all of the different factors that go into an acceptance. And it's somewhat random and arbitrary, but oftentimes it's not. And so there is a somewhat of a pathway to get into urology, as we know. Same for fellowship if you're a resident and same for getting a job after fellowship or residency. So being in close contact with a mentor who has the space to be honest with you provides I think the tools for you to really self-assess and understand what you need as the mentee. But without that, 
if it's just accolades, if it's just hyperbole and you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you've been failed as the mentee. So this brings up an important point for us. I think it's pretty straightforward. We have medical students that are trying to get into residency. We have residents that are trying to get jobs or fellowships. We have fellows that are trying to get jobs. And then we have junior faculty. I don't know how you are, Andrew, but now, you know, we're not the new kid on the block for better, for worse. But I absolutely try to stay involved with junior faculty and share insights on, on things that I think might be effective or ineffective. So maybe we could start out with students and just dial into, A, I think it's critical to set the goal. Like, what is your goal? And if the goal is to get into residency, you know, then we break it down into how do we actually make that happen? And, you know, what are the things that you're kind of mentor spiel, let's just say, to like a medical student? So first thing I say is decide on surgery or medicine. Do you want to be in the OR or do you want to not be in the OR? And I'm not talking about sort of the endoscopy GI suite. I'm talking about being in the OR or not. So that's really the bifurcation. Make your life and your decision much easier by just starting broad. Surgery or not. Once you've decided on surgery, side note, there's no question other than urology, but realistically, you want to start thinking about your experiences on various rotations. And the problem with medical student rotations is it's site-specific, it's experience-specific, and then you're asked to make a big life decision. So I try and give talks to MS1s and 2s to get them clinically involved and maybe start dipping their toes in different things early on. So we actually give little mini lectures, 10 minutes, about what urology is and what it looks like along with ENT and ortho and the other subspecialties so that they can at least start to understand. After that, it's year specific. So what should you be focusing on right now? Your training and your life, to be honest, is like a house, right? When you leave one room, shut the light off, go to the next room and focus on that. And it's not so clean cut, right? Because you have complications that follow you and life that follows you around. But in general, I tell them to try and compartmentalize. So compartmentalizing your life allows you to focus on the things that are at hand. So if you're an MS2, you got your coursework, you got research that you want to focus on, and that's really it. And then once you're an MS3, you got your clerkships and also some research things going on. Then you start adding in, where am I going to do my sub-eye, region where of interest, fourth year, you know, we start talking about applications, letters of rec, et cetera. So it's really MS specific, person specific but making sure that they have certain things that they're focusing on at each time point. Yeah, that's perfect. And to me, it becomes immediately obvious that you've spent some time thinking about this. And it kind of goes back to repetition, which you'd mentioned. And also, I don't know if you've ever seen any formal training, but that seems like, you know, you could sit down with MS1 and say, hey, here's a bit of a strategy. And I think also to give them finite, concrete goals. I mean, we like we all like, the sense of creating something we need to do, doing it and then being done with it versus research is like overhanging and like, you know, it's just always bogging you down. You always feel like you've got to do more. I mean, I tell my mentees, you know, if it's a summer research intern or God knows what, that try to define goals because one of the things about research specifically is it will, it's always there and you could always be doing more. And, you know, you want to end the day or the week or the month feeling like, I accomplished what I intended to accomplish. So I think that that's, that's great intel. And Andrew, is it the mentor's job to 
be an advocate. If you're the mentor, are you calling your colleagues, your co-fellows, your co-residents at other places and saying, hey, you know, I've got this mentee that's lights out. Is it your job to write their letters of recommendation? How do you kind of perceive that? That is an amazing question. And I will take that back to honesty. I think that your reputation, it actually depends on your recognition of strengths, weaknesses, talents, et cetera. So you and I have had conversations about prospective students, both when you're at UT Southwestern and at San Diego. We do this song and dance often. I find that just like the honesty I have to give my mentee, I have to be honest to my colleagues. Otherwise I'm failing them and I'm failing myself, you know, cause I'm sticking my neck out. So I think that as a mentor, if I set the stage correctly for them and really understand realistic goals and they kind of meet me where we both need to be at and we kind of understand that those expectations and goals, then I think it makes it a lot easier for me when it comes to the recommendation phase or the stick in my neck out phase, because we've already had that conversation. We know where we're at. We know our strengths and our weaknesses. And so I can just be honest. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think on the flip side too, it's important in my opinion that the mentee doesn't feel like they're going to offend the mentor by not asking for a letter, for instance. And by all means, the students are tremendous. I've been blessed to be in departments with just extremely well-established, well-known partners. And I'll always say, listen, there's a chair's letter, then there's the program director's letter, then you have Peggy Pearl or Manoj Manga or Jill Buckley or whoever. If you've got to limit it to three, if it was me, I wouldn't be in that list, for instance. And I think that's, you know, the other bit. Well, I think you're selling yourself a bit short there, but I do understand the point. And I think it's a really valid one to make sure that you discuss that openly and honestly. And uh, one of my colleagues, Bethany DeRoche, she'll tell the med students that she mentors, hey, honestly, like I will give you very critical evaluation. I'll help you with your interview skills. I'll help you with this, but my letter won't carry as much weight as Dr. Weiss's in our chair. And so I think that's important and valuable feedback for the students. Yeah. And it's probably beyond the scope of this talk to run through all the facets for a student, preparing their grand rounds talk, being prepared for the OR. But yeah, I think we want to be available. We want to be honest. I mean, the other day, one of the medical students sent me his presentation and like slides one through four were like print screens of the NCCN guidelines panel. I was like, no, I know you're brilliant. I know you know this stuff. I want you to put down like a couple of bullet points and then talk about it so you don't lose everybody. Or when a busy slide pops out being like, you don't want a busy slide. You don't want a busy slide and say, I know this is a busy slide because if you know it, it shouldn't be in there. And all of that, you know, of course, takes time to run through, hey, letters, a ways, professionalism, et cetera. But I think that's really critical for the students. And then how about for the residents? You know, how do you kind of envision? I've seen this go both ways, right? We're like assigned a mentor. There's no chemistry. It doesn't click. You kind of check a box once a year and you know, that's like 10 minutes between like cases saying, yeah, we've had our mentor meeting. And and then I've seen also extremely rewarding mentor-mentee relationships on both ends, you know, as, as a mentor and a mentee. But for residents, you know, what are, what are you doing to kind of get them through and be a mentor? So before I jump into that, I want to just touch upon that idea of mandatory mentorship, which a lot of hospital systems are now requiring. 
And I find that that falls so short of the mark. And even talking, you know, there's unsaid big New York City hospital that my family member works at, and it's like requiring them to be a mentor and have mentees. And I can tell you that the interest level and engagement is significantly less than somebody who has demonstrated the initiative, the excitement, and shown me that they want my time and that's valuable to them. So, you know, that works. But with regards to the resident question, residents become leaders early on. And if they do, then they become exceptional leaders. So we have our PGY1s teaching our MS4s who are teaching our MS3s, PGY2s who are managing them. So there's like a structured mentorship, mentee relationship that's organic, but also somewhat formalized. So in our, and this is for most programs, I would say, I hope, but you have, you tend to pair up rather than same year, you tend to pair up higher levels. And we really strongly encourage teaching and individuality. And I think that by illustrating or demonstrating our mentorship leadership skill set and what we do for the students, that modeling then trickles down to our residents, which then trickles down to our students. And I think it's a very nice environment for developing that skill set. Yeah, well, that's interesting, Andrew. I think it's quite common to have a faculty resident mentor-mentee relationship, but I'm not sure if formal senior junior resident mentorship models exist. I mean, of course, you know, we've all been residents. We know that seniors often take under their wing and things along those lines. But yeah, I mean, I think organic yet cultivated is probably how I would describe that. And, you know, certainly something I would maybe think about bringing up to our program director here because it, it may just help having somebody that's a bit above you, but in the same breath, your compadre to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, I think the residency mentorship, it's hard to kind of, you know, the goal isn't necessarily quite of the mentor-mentee relationship isn't quite as well-defined as for the goal of a student. I mean, residency could be tough getting through. I mean, I've, I've served as like a mentor to help people become more efficient or there's been some clinical decision questions, et cetera. So I think the residency part to me personally is a bit harder to pinpoint what this is supposed to be. Maybe contrasted to like fellows where it's like, let's have you be productive. Let's get you a sweet job. Yeah, I think both the things you just met. So student and fellow, a lot of the time commitment is removed. So within residency, you just have this sort of grueling time commitment that is built in or baked into residency. And I think getting through residency is a lot more challenging than getting through medical school or even fellowship. So it may not be the ideal time to really hone in on those skills, but if you can start planting those seeds early and at least semi-developing them, I think that it tends to burgeon and, and grow into something more fruitful later. Yeah. And I think of like fellows as this is a time where you'd mentioned selflessness. It's critical to like, let them take the lead on projects. It's critical that if they wrote like a clinical trial that they're going to be on it, suggesting them for editorial boards trying to get them on committees or chairing a session, even at your own expense, maybe that you've been invited to do something and say, Hey, I actually think person B would be amazing. And it's not an easy thing to do. We still probably consider ourselves junior ish and we're trying to like establish ourselves, 
But I don't know. What, what are your takes on some of those things? I think that it comes back to you several fold greater. You know, I think you end up getting a lot of those invites more so later on based on ones that you've gifted or delved out to others to allow them to grow. So truly, I think that selflessness comes back to you and pays back multifold more than just that one individual paper or book chapter or presentation. Yeah. And for the fellows, if I feel like they're a good, strong clinician and surgeon and researcher and all those kind of positive traits, I will happily reach out. I mean, that goes for anybody. You know, if they've kind of demonstrated they've got positive attributes, I think as the world gets smaller, personal contact becomes quite important. But the junior faculty too, I mean, you know, we've all done stuff okay, done stuff well, done stuff bad. And I think, you know, just broadly passing that down to the to the younger folks is actually critical. Because when you start as an attending, it's like, it's all been fairly prescriptive, but now it's like, I need to figure this out. Yeah, I think that one of the skill sets that you have, and I think most good leaders have, and this is where the concept of leadership and mentorship kind of blur, but it's being able to recognize like real strengths within an individual and leveraging those and, and really embracing those. So if you have a junior faculty that has passion about something, rather than dumping papers, dumping responsibilities, identifying what they're interested in, and then building that up and allowing them to run with it. Again, it will pay back multifold rather than just like, oh, you have to be the quality person because I don't want to do it. You have to do this because I don't want to do it. There's a difference between giving somebody something that is valuable versus giving something that they don't want and becomes a task or a responsibility. It seems so obvious and it's shocking how that's maybe not always the perception of a mentee by others, but if they're happier, they're going to be more productive. If they're happier, ostensibly, you're going to be more happier. I actually think that a part of our job as mentors is helping to avoid burnout, recognizing it and so forth. And, you know, if you're dumping stuff, that's not how it works. And, you know, I say this during the fellowship interviews and I sincerely mean it is like, you know, my job is to understand what gets you excited and help you get where you're going. Boom. Mentorship 101, man. That's it. You know, one of the things that I've enjoy, but also find challenging. And I'd like to think I've evolved as mentoring people that are not exactly like me. Probably the easiest one with the most hilarious examples would be generational differences. Residents were called residents because once upon a time they resided in the hospital. You know, they worked a long, long hours and everything came as a distant second, grand rounds on Saturdays. And if you didn't see the patient, you were going to get lambasted. You know, I've experienced this, you know, I've experienced people that trained in a different generation where I remember being scared to ask if I could like take some time off to go be present for the birth of my second child, which I would say is not good, normal, typical, anything along those lines. And for us, I think it's, we're at the, we're cuspies, right? We're at the cusp of generation X and millennials. I squarely kind of identify as Generation X. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about that maybe. You know, let's talk about mentoring people that have a slightly different outlook on life than maybe you or I, even though you're a millennial. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm a cusper. I'll just leave it at that. But I mean, let's be honest. Millennials in 2021 make up the largest segment in our population, right? They, they pass the boomers. So this is a racially diverse, economically distressed, 
and politically liberal group, right? So we have to understand that as mentors, usually the mentee is looking at somebody who's in a different generation than they are. And it doesn't have to be. In fact, mentorship is not gender. It's not race. It's not age specific. You can have mentors that are specifically something, but it can be any one of those things, but doesn't have to. But I will say that by and large, a mentee tends to be younger and a mentor is older just based on experience and knowledge, et cetera. Each one of them brings something to the table that the other should be able to learn from and leverage. So if the Gen X or boomer comes in saying, well, those damn millennials, they're so tech driven. They want information and technology. Now they try and create an environment based on feedback and value different things than I do. Whereas the boomers tend to be the DIY subset. They want to do it themselves. Hard work, busting through the wall is kind of what is valued. Millennials want to work smarter, not harder. So there's something to be learned. I think there's, you know, experience, knowledge, et cetera, from the Gen X boomer generation. And then the millennials, I think, can bring in this efficiency or a different kind of perspective than their mentor. So if you were to just say, as a mentor, I can't deal with this, like they're just totally on a different planet than me, you've lost a major opportunity for yourself because the mentee can actually elevate your game and get you to the next level. But that's why I said I take away little bits from each one because I'm, I'm learning about all this stuff even myself and I'm a cusper. So I can only imagine how it is for a lot of the chairs out there and a lot of the older generation urologists when you have a young millennial come around and try and ask for advice. There's just a disconnect, but rather than seeing it as a disconnect, try and bridge that gap and see where the other's coming from and, and leverage both skill sets. A thousand percent. I mean, I remember like there's been changes, which I would consider generally positive changes, work-life balance, recognizing burnout, things along those lines. I mean, some of the initiatives I've seen, even over the course of being in urology are say, established maternity leave and paternity leave practices as an example. Now, you know, I took a week off of my vacation when I had a kid and, you know, at that time I felt a little bit lazy doing that. But if the policy was that you've got a new kid and you get a couple of weeks off, that's wonderful. And, you know, I won't take credit for this, but there was a nice article by Jake Quarles and Jason Haffron, which translated traditional views and millennial views. And I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, traditionally laziness would have been the description, but it's more like redefining productivity and work-life balance. Entitlement is more of an entrepreneurial spirit. Requiring handholding is more like desiring agility. And then authority issues are more just redefining respect. I vividly recall being scared or so nervous about like reaching out to anybody when I was a medical student that I'm going to like do something to nudge them the wrong way. Or if I emailed them again, I'm going to like piss them off to high heavens. And it wasn't normal. You know, it's not a normal way to behave, I don't think. And I don't know. What do you think about that, Andrew? I love that change in mindset and redefining some of these things that are somewhat cast aside as negative traits. Really, I mean, they, they value training and development over salary in a lot of ways these days. And so it's something that we can like I said, leverage and, and utilize. And I think it just takes a change of perspective and opening and welcoming that different mindset. 
Yeah. So, you know, we probably don't have time to talk about being an excellent mentee at this time. And I think you kind of largely captured it though. Like when you have the face-to-face time, try to make it high yield, have some action items, have the subsequent set of action items. Yeah, that actually, we didn't get the chance to talk about yet, but I think that is critical is to leave every meeting. And I do this outside of mentor-mentee relationships, but like for every meeting I sit in, what's the action checklist? Who's responsible for what? And what's the time frame? So we have a timestamp. When are we meeting next? And what is each person in the room responsible for? And that's how you can hold people accountable. That's how you can actually move things forward. And sometimes they don't happen, right? I mean, life gets in the way, a lot of things happen, but at least we know what our next step is. Right. And I mean, the organizational aspects of that can't be overstated. So that those are kind of some of the generational bits of it. And then, of course, I think there's, I mean, obviously no two people are alike, but let's talk about, you know, low-hanging fruit, mentoring people of a different ethnicity, a different gender, different background. And maybe I'll just share a little teeny story. San Diego's done a pretty good job about trying to really increase DEI participation interest in urology. And I've got a first-year medical student from Puerto Rico, no home program, and he's over here living and working with me for six weeks. It's amazing. You don't know what you don't know until it's there, right? Like, what is your exposure to urology, ability to become competitive, et cetera? And I mean, just the background, it's been a phenomenal I wouldn't consider myself a DEI. We're an overrepresented minority in medicine and urology, but I'd like to think I've been able to do a pretty good job defining goals. Here's what we want for you. We want you to have a project. We want you to write a paper. We want you to get some abstracts. We want you to have fun, learn something along the way. But yeah, what, what are your thoughts on, again, maybe gender and ethnicity being low-hanging fruit? I think it's critically important. I think it's important for yourself as a mentor to, again, build your experience and understand other people's points of views. It's important for you to be intentional about taking on people who are different than you. So in Brooklyn, we have a very diverse population and our medical school prides itself and our residency prides itself on a very diverse residency and medical school makeup. I will tell you that there is still a ton of intrinsic bias, regardless of how hard you try, You all come from different places and have different things that are built into your framework. So acknowledging that bias and being open and honest with yourself about that will benefit you tremendously. I will also go back to that concept of mentorship teamwork because sometimes it is important to have some gender or race specific mentors. So, you know, we have the Society of Women in Urology, which has grown tremendously and needs to continue to grow tremendously. You know, we have the R. Frank Jones Society in urology, which needs to grow many fold. But these are places that we need to embrace and not just as mentor mentees, but just to advance our field. And so I think the more diverse your mentor group and mentee group, the better we're able to understand our own bias and then hopefully eventually eliminate that. I love it. I think it's just being open, being honest, acknowledging, listen, I've not walked in your shoes. You've not walked in my shoes, but that doesn't mean we can't help each other out, learn from each other, and ultimately get you where you're going. I very much appreciate that. So 
I hope nobody in the listenership feels like as we've been kind of reflecting on this, that Andrew and I aren't incredibly grateful and lives and our careers. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. But maybe I'll ask you to reflect on the qualities by all means, if there are certain people that you think are really worth kind of calling out. But what are the qualities that when you look back are the attributes that, you know, you want to emulate or that that were extended to you for the most tremendous mentors that you've had? The best mentors that I've had are the ones that see me for who I am and want to embrace my own skill set, my own, the things that I excel at. So again, meeting that meeting me where I'm at, but also pushing me a little bit harder than I ever thought that I could. So it doesn't ever get ever, you know, should never get adversarial or confrontational, but it's just pushing me one step beyond my comfort level. And that has always kind of driven me further and made me want to do more. I think that going back to the key qualities for an effective mentor is not spreading yourself too thin and taking on too much, being able to devote that time to an individual, being humble and selfless. I mean, two of the things that you're, I mean, not to, you know, again, to your horn, but like you are doing amazing things and you're one of the most humble people that I know. And so I think that those qualities are things that people latch onto. And I've said this a couple of times now, but really, truly having the ability to be honest with somebody, both in day-to-day interactions, but also in goal setting and, and expectations for the future of what that, what your future looks like. And from a mentee perspective, really making sure to drop the fear, be courageous and approach a mentor. They are human. They've had mentors too. So they know what it's like. So being courageous, taking that first step, reaching out, identifying who you want to have as a mentor and going for it. Always come and prepared. That iceberg analogy. Make sure to do the work before the meeting. Come and then really show off what you got in that short time that you have one-on-one with the, the mentor. And then respecting your mentor's time and understanding that they're out and about, they got a life, they got family, they got all the things that everybody else has, plus the thing that, that you're seeking out their mentorship for. Those are the key takeaways for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so much of that resonates. I think it's, for me, the the most amazing qualities, and, and there's kind of one person that embodies a lot of this, is mentors that have facilitated decision-making for me instead of making my decisions for me absolutely keyed in on what makes me lively and happy versus what their agenda is. I think empathy for, you know, your position as a junior person, whatever you may be going through. I mean, this isn't necessarily the focus of today's talk, but even the handling complications, being there, being a listener, being committed, being patient. These are the things that that really jump out. And then one of the aspects we touch base on is I feel like a good mentor truly takes joy in their mentees' successes. And I have been been lucky to get some recognition for a couple of things. And my mentor, you would have thought it was his son or his own accolades. And it was really very, very meaningful to me. And probably the one of the most impactful mentors I've had was Klaus Rohrburn, when I was, who was our chairman at UT Southwestern during residency and also during the first part of my career. And I remember a graduation speech that he gave. And he'd always, I mean, I can't imagine how much time he spends on these graduation speeches. But this one was about mentoring. 
So he starts out with the story from the Odyssey where Odysseus is getting ready to go off to war and he entrusts the care of his son and his estate to Mentor. And, you know, he's kind of getting his affairs in order. And, you know, the, the kind of punchline is that he passes on the responsibilities, including the responsibilities of being a father to somebody else. And I kind of think of this relationship in some ways of, you know, almost like a parental relationship where you just want the best for them. And that's kind of where it ends. So, you know, Andrew, I've absolutely learned a lot from this. It's very abundantly obvious that you spend a lot of time thinking about how to build up other people, which is just such a wonderful attribute. Any kind of parting thoughts as we wind this one down? I think you just kind of nailed it on the head right there. Enjoy what you do. Enjoy what other people do. Show up to work happy, it's, you know, more than 70% of your life and take other people's successes as your successes. All right, buddy. I thank you for your mentoring advice. I know I was multiple times over the course of my fellowship and attending hood, you know, we've talked and you've had nothing but sound advice and it's always so positive and so welcome. So thank you for that. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure to join you today. And thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vedavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.